السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وله أما بعد All praise and thanks is due to Allah Azza wa Jal Peace and salutations upon Muhammad ibn Abdullah Salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhi Peace and salutations upon his family, upon his friends And upon all those who try to emulate him until the end of time First topic we want to look at today is The custodianship of the Kaaba Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu an He used to say to the Quraysh the guardians of this house before you were Tassim. But they lost respect for it and violated its sanctity. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed them. Then guardianship passed to Jurhum. But they lost respect for it and violated its sanctity as well. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He destroyed them. So do not lose respect for it and honor its sanctity. This is found in Al-Bayhaqi. So my beloved brothers and sisters in Islam, right? this title is headed or it's entitled Custodianship of the Kaaba. Right? And it deals with people that were in charge. On a side note, we are obviously not in charge of the Kaaba. But we should never ever lose that respect and the sanctity for the Kaaba. Sometimes we go to Mecca and what happens? We stay there for four weeks, for five weeks. So the first week, Alhamdulillah, you know, you respect it, etc. And as time goes on, you become also, yeah, it's just the Kaaba, man. I'm going to see it tomorrow, I'll see it later for another salah. I don't need to go to the masjid. So never lose that value for the Kaaba. And that's why a lot of the ulama, they would say also, that some of them, or some of the salaf, they wouldn't go very often. Right? So maybe they lived in Medina, maybe they lived close to Mecca, but they wouldn't go very often to Mecca. Why? So they keep that sanctity, they keep that respect. I think other ulama say, look here, if you live close, I mean, go. Why not? If you are from the residence of Makkah, go. But the point that we're trying to drive home is never lose the honor and the respect for the Kaaba. So what's going to happen? Sometimes you're going to find someone is walking in front of you and he's busy tawafing and he's taking a selfie here and his stickers here in the ear and that, right? That don't. Don't do things like that. Right? We're not here to discuss fiqh masail or photos, whether it's halal or haram and that, right? That's, leave that one side. But we're looking at keeping the sanctity of the holy sites. Right? You want to take a picture of the Kaaba, alhamdulillah, it's fine. But why must you be in there? Why must you be making dua? <laughs> this becomes a problem. Uthman ibn Talha. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him. He was a companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was the key bearer of the gates of the holy Kaaba. Uthman ibn Talha. So he narrates this narration now. He says, Once I met Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam before hijrah. 
So this means this was still in the first 13 years of Islam. And ye peace be upon him, preach to me the message of Islam. So what do we derive from here? That Uthman ibn Talha at this time he was not? He was not Muslim. I refused and remarked that he had opposed the religion of his nation and concocted a new religion. Of what? Right? Have we not heard this before sometimes? You know, you maybe grew up in a particular household, you grew up in a particular way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided you to the truth. So maybe you leave off certain actions that your family and your forefathers were doing, etc., etc. Then what's the first thing they tell you? You come with a new, is it raining? Alhamdulillah. Right? You come with a new religion. Right? It sounds better in Afrikaans. Yalla come with a new deen. Right? Uh, just before we forget the dua for raining is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He taught us and he said, Allahumma sayyiban nafi'ah. He said, oh Allah, make it beneficial rain. Also reminds me of a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That he would make dua and he would say, oh Allah, let it rain around us and not on us. Meaning that let the rain be beneficial rain, let it not destroy our homes and our crops, etc. And the reason behind this was that one day the Prophet ﷺ, my companion came to him, was giving a talk or something, and the companions, they came and they said, a man got up a Bedouin, a, right, a Bedouin in English, a Bedouin in Arabic. They got up, now they were very rough and ready, they were, if you can use the word, they were, they were like, Afwan? Not refined. Not refined, right? <laughs> So what happens to them is he gets up and he says, Oh Prophet of Allah, make dua for us for rain. So Prophet Salah makes dua for rain. He comes back the next week, he says, Oh Prophet of Allah, you make dua for rain, but the rain is destroyed everything. So then make dua for us that we get rain, but it doesn't destroy them. The Prophet Salah made these two duas. So like I was saying, so people are going to come to you and they're going to tell you this exact thing. That you know what, you oppose the religion, you turned on your grandfather, you did this, your uncle used to do this, and why are you not doing this now, etc., etc. Right? It happened to all of us. Right? They would tell us. Before you went to Medina, you were like this. You came back from Medina, now you people are like this. <laughs> this is life. But if you believe in something, and you believe it to be the truth, and it's based on the Quran and on the Sunnah, upon the understanding of the pious predecessors, as Ibn Abbas, he would say, or Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, one of them, they would say that the jama'ah, right, the group, that if you are on the haqq, if you are on the truth, and even if you are alone, you are the jama'ah, you are the group. So he says, then one day the Prophet, peace be upon him, he arrived to enter the gate of the Kaaba. So he wanted to enter the Kaaba, which we used to open on Mondays and Thursdays. When he, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, tried to enter along with some of his other companions, I snubbed him. And I did not allow him to enter. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he kept calm and he did not say anything to me except that very soon 
the key of the Kaaba would be in his hand, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he would hand it over to anyone who he wished. I replied that by that time all the Quraysh would have died. What's happening? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he didn't say much. All that he said to him is that the ski of the Kaaba will be in my hand very soon. And I will choose who to give the key to. On the day when Fathul Makkah took place, right? And inshallah next week we will be looking at Fathul Makkah. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he asked me to hand over the key to him. I had to obey because now the messenger of Allah was the ruler of Makkah. What do we take from this? A very important lesson. That when you in a place in a land, you follow who? You follow the rule of the land, of the ruler. And many of the ulama, they say, even if it is a disbelieving ruler, so long they do not encourage you to do haram or open disbelief to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what's still about a Muslim ruler? If there's no evidence that a Muslim ruler is a kafir, is a disbeliever, then no one has the right to call him a disbeliever. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi in other ahadith speaking about rulers, he never spoke or he never said that all the rulers are going to be 100% correct. He said that even if they strike your backs, even if they take your money, so what does this mean? Is that a good ruler or not a good ruler? Not a good ruler. But what does he say at the end of the hadith? You still obey him. Right? So he obeyed Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he gave the key to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam now Right, so this is Uthman giving the story. He says that he reminded me the time when I had not let him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, into the holy Kaaba and observed that one day that key would be in his presence. He's, right? And he, Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he would grant this key to anyone that he felt like giving it to. Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then returned the key to me. And said that he had given the key to me and my progeny forever. Hearing this, I confessed that it was true and I recited the kalima. And I declared that I believed that he, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is a true prophet of Allah. Right? So this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He changes people's hearts. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Look at Umar ibn Khattab Look at Khalid bin Walid Look at Wahshi And that's why it's dua that one should always make a prophetic dua Ya muqallib al-kulub Thabbit qalbi ala dinik Oh changer of hearts Because only Allah can change hearts Right, you might have that one family member that's not maybe on the straight path. You might have that one brother, right, that one cousin that's maybe involved in things that he's not supposed to be involved in. Right? 
but never write them off. Right? You're going on a journey of Hajj. Once upon a time, we weren't all like this sitting here as well. Maybe some of us didn't want, didn't even dream of going on Hajj. But when you there make dua and make this dua continuously, memorize this dua. Ya muqallib al-qulub, thabbit qalbi ala dinik. Because wallahi, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said that there's going to come a time that fitna will be so rife. There's going to come a time that when holding on to the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is like holding on to a hot coal. Can you hold on to a hot coal? <laughs> going to burn. So, this is, and you can see it. We are heading into the times. If not, they are ready. And things are just going to get worse and worse. The next point, the Shaiba family up until today, they are the key bearers. They hold the keys of the Kaaba. So even when the king comes, or the prince comes, or any dignitary comes, and they need to go in, then who opens it for them? They don't have the key. The family of Shaiba will come and open the Kaaba for them. The next important thing we want to look at, and this is the Maqam Ibrahim, the station of Ibrahim or Nabi Ibrahim alayhi salatu wasalam. The Maqam Ibrahim, the station of Ibrahim, right, I'm not going to translate it again, is the stone on which he stood when he built or when he was building the Kaaba and he came to a higher point where he could not reach. So his son put his famous, this famous stone there for his father. Who was his son? Ismail. So that he could stand on it when the building grew taller. Which building is this? The Kaaba. The footprints of Al-Khalil, Ibrahim alayhi salatu wasalam, remained on the rock until the beginning of Islam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, وَاتَّخِذُوا مِنْ مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّةِ And take, my beloved people, right? Or you take the maqam of Nabi Ibrahim or the stone on which he stood while he was building the Kaaba as a musalla, as a place of worship. For some of your prayers, for example, the two raka'at after the tawaf of the Kaaba at Makkah. So you tawaf. You walked around the Kaaba seven times. What do you do after this? You need to make two raka'at. Where do you make this two raka'at? Behind the Maqam Ibrahim. Right, so maybe 20, 30 years ago it was easy. What are you going to do now? Where must you make it? So you go as close as you can to the Maqam Ibrahim. And if you can't do it, wherever you are behind it, there's no problem. In fact, many other ulama, they've explained that whether you make the two raka'ats behind the Maqam Ibrahim, this is better and obviously the best. But if you can't, you can make, can't, you can make it anywhere else in the haram. It is fine. But the two raka'ats is made after the tawaf. And this two raka'ats also is not just specific that when you're making the tawaf of Umrah or the tawaf of Hajj. Any tawaf. Right? Any tawaf that you make, you will make the two raka'ats after it. Your first raka'at, you recite Surah Al-Fatiha. 
and Kulia Ayyuhal Kafirun. The second raka'ah you recite Surah Fatiha and Surah Al-Ikhlas. Kulu Allahu Ahad. Ibn Kathir rahimallahu ta'ala he said the marks of his feet were clear on it meaning on the rock and were all well known the Arabs were familiar with that during their jahiliyyah and the Muslims also knew of that <coughs> Anas ibn Malik he said I saw the maqam on which were the marks of his toes and his heels but they disappeared because of people touching them with their hands. Right? It's stone. Obviously, it's not that hard. And after a while, it disappears. This Ibn Kathiri mentions this in his tafsir of Ibn Kathir. Right? His tafsir under this verse, وَاتَّخِذُوا مِنْ مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ Musalla. The next thing I would like to look at is known as Al-Hijr. In Cape Town, what is it known as? Hijr Ismail. And what else? The? No one? The Karalchi. Hey, never heard of this? Right? I'm sure some of you must have heard. Right? They say that we make salah in the Karalchi. The first point. It is a mistake to call it Al-Hijr Al-Ismail. Because the, this Hijr only became a Hijr a long time after the time of Ismail alayhi salatu wasalam. The correct form is to call it Al-Hijr only. Right? You want to call it the Karachi, there's no problem in that. That's how I understand it. But the point is that we don't add Ismail to the word Al-Hijr without attributing it to anyone else. The Hijr, what was it part of? It was part of the Kaaba. So whoever prays in it has prayed in the Kaaba. And praying in the Kaaba is permissible with regards to your Nafil prayers only. Which prayers? Nafil prayer. That's why if you see on television, right, you'll see Salah. The whole Haram area is full for the Farm Salah except what? The Hijr. Right? There's no one there. The gods, they stand there. They don't allow you to in, in to make your fard salah. Why? Because you cannot make salah inside the Kaaba, your fard salah. They're not trying to be funny. They're not just trying to stand there, okay, no, because we don't want you people to come in here. There's a reason for them. And it's a an Islamic reason. The Prophet, peace be upon him. Right? There's a hadith. This hadith is found in Bukhari and Muslim. Abdullah ibn Umar, the son of Umar, he said that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he entered the Kaaba accompanied by Usama, by Bilal, and Uthman ibn Talha. He closed the door and remained inside. Ibn Umar said, I asked Bilal when he came out, what did Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam do? He said, he put two pillars on his left, one pillar on his right, and three pillars behind him. And at that time the house was made or built on six pillars. And then he, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he prayed. There's another hadith in the sunan of Abu Dawud, At-Tirmidhi and Nasai. They all narrated from Aisha radiallahu anha 
that she said, I wanted to enter the house, the Kaaba, and pray inside it. But the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, took me by the hand and led me into Al-Hijr. And he said, pray in Al-Hijr. If you want to enter the house, for it is a part of the house. But your people ran out, ran out of funds when they rebuilt the Kaaba, so they left it outside the house. So this is the reason. Sometimes you might be wondering, but now why is this peace not in there? So this is the reason that Muhammad sallallahu says that they ran out of funds and they never included that in the Kaaba. The next important point we want to look at with regards to the Kaaba is the black stone. Known as what? Hajar. And what is Hajar al-Aswad famous for? Why does everyone know the Hajar al-Aswad? Because what do you do? When you're there, you kiss it, you touch it, and what else? The main thing? You? Naam, you start there. This is where you're going to start your first tawaf there. Your first shout of your tawaf will be there. And you will end there as well. So if you don't end there, and you end by the Rukun Yamani, or you end somewhere else, and you know you (laughs) miscalculated. Right? Just on that, a quick question. It's supposed to be with Sheikh Imran. But a quick question. I start my tawaf. I'm not sure. If I made five or six, what do I do? Did you ever think of that? No? <laughs> okay. That's good. What do I do? Continue from the lowest number. Right? You continue from the lowest number. Because if you continue from the highest number, there's still that possibility that you counted wrong. But if you continued from the lowest number, Alhamdulillah, it's fine. Understood. So the first point, right? There are a number of ahadith with regards to the black stone. The first thing we want to look at is the black stone was sent down by Allah to this earth from where? From Jannah. Right? This black stone, it came from Jannah. Ibn Abbas, he said, that the messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, he said, the black stone came down from paradise. Narrated by Imam At-Tirmidhi. Number two, the black stone was not black. It was white. Whiter than milk. But the sins of the sons of Adam made it black. It was narrated by Ibn Abbas. He said that the Messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, when the black stone came down from Jannah, it was whiter than milk, but the sons of the but the sins of the sons of Adam made it black. Again, narrated by Imam At-Tirmidhi. <coughs> Al-Mubarak Furi, he said, this means the sins of the sons of Adam who touched the stone caused it to turn black. This hadith should be taken on its face value. And there is no reason not to. Right? And this is either narrated in a report or a virtue of someone that has common sense, he says. Right? This is found in Tuhfatul Ahwadi. Tuhfatul Ahwadi 
is an explanation of the jami' of Imam At-Tirmidhi. And Shaykh Al-Mubarak Furi, he originates from India. Right, so he was Indian. He is also famously known for a famous book. I'm going to mention the name. I'm sure many of you will know this book. It has to do with the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Hey, no one. The sealed nectar. Al Rahik, Al Rahik Al Maktoum, right? By the same author, Al Mubarak Furi. And my advice is, get this book. You can download it. Right? PDF. You can buy the book. I'm always of the opinion it's better to buy a hard copy of a book. It's easier. You can always keep it with you wherever you are, read, etc., etc. And sometimes it's not good to read from a PC or a phone all the time. A brilliant book. In fact, it's so brilliant that he wrote this book that I'm not sure which king of Saudi Arabia at the time. But basically they organized a seerah competition. Right? So people would come and they would write seerah. And they had to hand it in and there was a board of ulama, they would read it and they chose the best one. And he won this. Right? So an excellent book of the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Another point regarding the black stone. The black stone will come forth on the day of Qiyamah and will testify in favor of those who touched it. Subhanallah. It was narrated that Ibn Abbas, he said, the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, concerning the black stone, by Allah. So he takes a qasim, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah will bring it forth on the day of resurrection. And it will have two eyes with which it will see. And it will have a tongue with which it will speak. And it will testify in favor of those who touched it in sincerity. Subhanallah. This hadith is found in Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah. Now look at what Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ends this hadith with. Those who touched it with sincerity. And this, my beloved brothers and sisters in Islam, is one of the keys to all our ibadah. Right? Ikhlas. Sincerity. Two things. There is two things. Right? Ingredients. For your actions to be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't know if I mentioned this in the first lesson. Did I or didn't I? For those that were here. No? Okay, anyways. Two things. This is number one. That all your ibadah, everything is only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is the proof of this? وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ And that you have not been commanded except that you worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sincerely. This is the first ingredient. And wallahi thumma wallahi. I take a qasam by Allah. This is something that 
lacks in the ummah is sincerity. We give food to the poor. Let's take pictures. Let's put it up on Facebook. Let's put it up on WhatsApp. Let's put it up on Twitter. We go for Umrah. We go on Hajj. Let's do the same thing. Right? You go to your hotel. Um, didn't you go make tawaf today? You know, I already made five tawafs. This is between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The whole world don't need to know that. Maybe that man is sick. Maybe the lady can't walk. And maybe that one tawaf that she did is equivalent to your 10 or 20 tawafs that you did. Right? So don't right, do things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if I have time at the end, you can remind me if there is time, I will narrate to you a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hadith is a bit long. So inshallah if we have time with regards to Sincerity and the people on Qiyamah. One of you can just remind me. And the second point for your ibadah to be accepted is what? The first is ikhlas, sincerity. What is the second one? Excuse me? Your intention will fall under here. The second one? Sorry? Performing it correctly. Like how Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did it. So number one, it is sincerity. Number two, it is mutaba'a li Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Following Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this hadith you've heard often. Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli. Make salah as if you have seen me, make salah. And the hadith you've heard here, on more than once, I'm sure from all three of us, is khudu anni manasikakum. That take from me your manasik. Take from me your hajj. So that is how we got there from sincerity. The next point, touching, kissing or pointing to the black stone. Why am I saying touching, kissing or pointing? Why do you think I said all three of that? Exactly. Right? You're going to try and you're going to try. So when you're making tawaf, it's it's impossible to get there, to touch every time for seven times. And this is why the Prophet said that you can just point. So you point with your hand, or if you have a walking stick, point with your stick, whatever you might have, just please don't hurt the person that's going to walk behind you or something like that. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he said, O oh, Afwan, Jabir ibn Abdullah, again, Jabir comes up, that when Muhammad entered Makkah, he came to the black stone and he touched it, and then he walked to the right of it and ran three times. This is known as Rommel. Again, if it's extremely full, right, you cannot do the Rommel. Right, you're going to have to walk. Some people will still try to do it and they will run people over. Then if you do the Rommel as well, it's not a sprint. You're not doing the 100 meter marathon. And to the men, don't run away from your wives. Right? This what happens. Right? The same thing with the sai. Right? That between the two green lights, you go a bit faster. Some people, they sprint. Then they look in the families, they at the back. You in front. Right? So you just trot nicely, just change your speed a bit. Right? This is only for who? For the men. He ran three times and he walked 
four times. So the first three times he would run or go faster and the four times for the men. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he kissed the black stone as well and his ummah followed his lead in doing this. This brings us to a narration of Umar ibn Khattab. Now listen to Umar ibn Khattab. He comes to the black stone and he kisses the black stone. And then he says very profound words. He says, Inni a'lam that indeed I know annaka hajaru that indeed you are a stone. La taduruni wa la Right, something to this effect. That you cannot benefit me, nor can you harm me. Lawla inni ra'aytu Rasulallahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qubbila ma qubbil. And had I not seen Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kiss you, I would have never kissed you. This, and this found in Bukhari, this my beloved brothers and sisters in Islam, is one of, of what? Right, this is why we do sunnah for number one. Number two, this is the pinnacle of tawheed. That nothing will harm us if it is not through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And nothing is going to benefit us if it is not through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That WhatsApp message that they got, that they sent you, if you don't send it to 10 people and you get up from here, your foot is going to break. Right? Have you seen this before? Right? Everyone seen this? Right? You don't need to send it to 10 people if you don't want to send it. Because if Allah wants your foot to break, He's going to make it break. Whether there was a WhatsApp message or whether there was not a WhatsApp message. This is also our pinnacle or the pinnacle of Tawheed. That our reliance and our tawakkul and our faith is only on Allah and on Allah alone. No saint or no grave, no alive or no dead person is going to be able to answer your prayers, he's not going to be able to help you, he's not going to be able to remove harm from you, he's not going to be able to benefit you. And if this was Umar ibn Khattab and he spoke to the black stone and you will see there are other narrations of the companions of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where they destroyed graves that were built up, where they destroyed certain things that led people to do shirk. They destroyed it. And I'm not talking about a hundred years ago. I'm not talking about 200 years ago. I'm talking about in the lifetime of the companions of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I narrate to you a hadith. Ali ibn Abi Talib. He says that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told me. He said, Ya Ali, O Ali, if you see a grave that is higher than a hand span, he says, O Ali, destroy it. Make it level. Who's telling Ali to do this? Right? The Prophet Obviously, I'm not saying go to, to the Maghbara now, eh? Right? 
or go to other places and go. No, that obviously you need the Islamic leader to tell you, etc., etc. But I'm just showing you the ahadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So this is with regards to the black stone. The next important point you want to look at is the zamzam. And everyone knows what is Zamzam water. Everyone drank Zamzam water. Alhamdulillah. Zamzam is the name of a famous well in Masjid al-Haram. Which is 38 cubits away from the Kaaba. It is the well of Ismail, the son of Ibrahim. From which Allah quenched the thirst of Ismail when he was an Infant. I'm not going to go into the whole story. Alhamdulillah, we've all heard the story, we know it. And when you go for the second Eid, most of the Imams, they speak about the same or the story every time. His mother looked for water for him, but could not find any. She climbed on top of As-Safa, praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help her and to give her water for Ismail. She then climbed on Marwa, did the same thing. Allah then sent Jibreel and he struck the earth with his heels and water appeared. From that time up until now, there is still water. And bi'idhnillahi ta'ala, there will still be water until the day of Qiyamah. The drinking of Zamzam water, the ulama, they have agreed that it is mustahab, it is recommended for the pilgrims on Hajj and Umrah, in particularly and for all Muslims in general to drink Zamzam water because of the Sahih Hadith in which the Prophet, peace be upon him, is reported to have drunk the water of Zamzam. Imam al-Bukhari, in his Sahih, he says that Abu Dhar said that the Messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, said concerning the water of Zamzam, it is indeed a blessing. And it is a food that satisfies one. Reported by Imam Muslim as well. Or he adds on to this narration, and it is a cure for the sick. So Zamzam, it will quench you. It is like food. And it is a cure for the sick. Drinking the Zamzam water means that a person does not need to eat, and it will cure his sickness. But this is when he drinks it with faith and sincerity. As proven in the hadith of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari who stayed in Makkah for a month without any nourishment except Zamza. Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib he said the people used to compete over Zamzam during the time of Jahiliya. People who had children used to bring them and give them to drink. And this was the early morning, right? They would do this in the early morning. We used to, or we used to think that it was a help for people who had children. Al-Abbasid during the Jahiliya, Zamzam was known as Shaba'a, satisfaction. Some people said that the virtue of Zamzam remains only so long as it is in its original place. And that when it is taken away, it changes. This idea, it has no basis. Right? So Zamzam, whether you drink it in Cape Town, whether you drink it in Mauritius, in Antarctica, in Makkah, it has the same virtue. The Prophet, peace be upon him, 
He wrote to Suhail ibn Amr. He said, if my letter reaches you at night, do not wait until morning. And if it reaches you in, during the day, do not wait until the evening to send me some zamzam water. So if it had no value, why would the Prophet ask him to send him zamzam? He sent him two containers full. And at that time he was in Medina before the conquest of Makkah. This hadith is Hassan because of corroborating evidence. Aisha radiallahu anha also used to take zamzam water away with her. And she reported that the messenger of Allah used to say or used to do this. He used to carry in small vessels and buckets and pour it unto the sick and give it to them to drink. Whenever a guest visited Ibn Abbas, he would honor them by giving them zamzam water. Al-Ta'a was asked about taking zamzam water away. He said, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, al-Hasan and al-Husayn, all took zamzam away with him. So bring home zamzam. Right? Obviously there's a limit, etc. But bring zamzam water home. Give it to people. Right, before I move on to the next topic, I have a question. Can you mix zamzam water with normal water? Will it carry its virtue? Yes or no? Or I don't know. Who doesn't know? Okay. So those that didn't put up their hands, either yes or no. Okay, you're going to say yes. Anyone else? We have no no's. Right, so the answer is that it still carries its virtue. Many of the ulama have said that one is allowed to mix Samzam water with normal water and it will still carry its virtue. So I don't know if you people... Yes, with water. Right? That obviously... Right? People used to make a joke about this. They would say that some of the hujaj when they come home, right? you hear this, people used to say this. And I mean up until subhanallah, I think it was up until my last year of my studies in Medina we... I actually read this. And be myself, I was of the opinion that you cannot mix. And then read and you find that many of the ulama in that day said it still carried the virtues. It's something good to know. Well, sometimes, you know, you it's a Ramadan in it and maybe there's a little zamzam for everyone to break the fast. So mix it. And everyone gets a nice full and you can still make dua. Another important thing is, that I never mentioned this hadith here, but the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would stand and drink zamzam water. Why? Why would you stand and drink zamzam water? So that he can drink more. So when you're there, drink as much as you can. Fill your bottles, take it to your room, leave it in your fridge, whatever you want to do with it. Right? Try not to drink Pepsi, Coke, right? Try and drink as much Samsung water as you can. It's for free there. Right? Cold, hot, whatever you feel comfortable with, but drink as much as you can. And make dua. 
Het is een narration that comes to mind of Imam Ash-Shafi'i rahimallahu ta'ala. I cannot remember the exact three things. But there was three things that Imam Ash-Shafi'i made dua for. And he would drink zamzam, make dua for this, and it would happen. I know, remember, one of it was that he wanted to, when he was shooting his bow and arrow, he wanted to hit his target, and every time after that, after drinking the zamzam, he would hit his target. And there's actually a book written on this. That book is not translated into English. But where they've recorded, or this author has recorded, all the ulama of the pious predecessors of the salaf, their du'as are drinking, when drinking zamzam water, and now it got accepted. So never for a moment lose hope in this. Make du'a. It will get accepted bi ta'ala. The next important point I want to look at, is the multazam. The place of clinging. Have you heard of this before? The multazam is the part of the Kaaba that is between the black stone and the door of the Kaaba. What is meant by iltizam is clinging onto it. So when someone says to someone, huwa multazim, right? Or, ana multazim bi sheikh, that I'm in the company of the sheikh all the time. I'm clinging onto the sheikh. Right? And this is when the supplicant makes dua. So he is making dua, places his chest, his face and his forearms and his palms against it. And he makes dua for whatever he wants. Now here my beloved brothers and sisters in Islam, there is no specific dua that a Muslim should say in that place. There is no specific dua. But you can make dua for whatever you want. Another question. Must the dua be in English or in Arabic? In Urdu? Can it be dua be in any language? Yes or no? Right? Everyone agree? Alhamdulillah. My next advice for you. Right? Obviously we all like to say things in Arabic. It sounds nice. But you don't have to walk with that thick bookie. And you don't have to read all those du'as in Arabic which you don't understand. Right? Make the du'a to Allah, speak to Allah in the language that you know best. Allah will understand. Right? Again, sincerity. This is what you must do. To such an extent that du'a can be made in this that even... Ulama, for example, they have said, with regards to the Friday khutbah, that the Friday khutbah should be in the language of the people. And here I'm not talking about what we do in Cape Town, where we have a pre-khutbah talk. I'm talking when the imam actually goes onto the mimba. Because if he does that in English, there is no need for the pre-khutbah talk. And many other ulama says that this is the sunnah. That you're supposed to do, and I'm just using in inverted commas, the Arabic khutbah in the language of the people so that they understand. This is the purpose of Juma. Some ulama have even said that when you make ruku and sujood, your dua can be in your language. Other ulama says that any salah besides your far salah, and there's a difference of opinion amongst the ulama. So we won't find, right, 
a hadith which is authentic where the Prophet ﷺ went to the Multazam like this and he made dua. There are two hadith, both of them are weak. However, the ulama of hadith, they say that if you take these asanid and you corroborate them, put bring them all together, then you will find that it becomes hasan. And it is good to use this hadith. This was the view of Sheikh Albani as well. Right, so this was, alhamdulillah, this was the last slide that we had. And I said something that I wanted to do something at the end. What was it? Yes, a hadith regarding sincerity. Okay. This hadith is a very long hadith. I'm going to paraphrase the hadith for us to understand and just to make it easier. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he mentions, right, this hadith is narrated by Abu Huraira radiyallahu anhu. That on the day of Qiyamah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to call three people. Right, so three groups of people. The first group of them is the ulama. Those people that they recited the Qur'an, they taught the Qur'an. They gave lectures, they were involved in the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he's going to ask them, why did you do what you did? Why did you recite Quran? Why did you teach? Why did you give khutbahs? Why did you give classes? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? They're going to say, we did it for your sake, oh Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to tell them that indeed you have lied. You did this so people can say, Look how pious this person is. Look what a beautiful voice he has. Look how he teaches. Look how he speaks. And Allah is going to tell them that you have indeed lied. He's going to order the malaika to drag them by their face and throw them into the fire of Jahannam. This is the first group. The second group is going to be those people that gave sadaqah. Right? They gave sadaqah. And Allah is going to ask them, why did you give sadaqah? Why did you build this mosque? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? They're going to say, we did it for your sake, oh Allah. We did it so that we can uplift the ummah. Allah is going to tell them, you're lying. You did this so people can say, what a generous person this one is. How good is this person? Look what he has done. Look what he has built. Allah is going to order the malaika to drag them by their face and throw them into the fire of Jahannam. The third group of people is those people, the mujahideen or the shuhada. Those people that fought in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they were killed in the path of Allah. Allah is going to ask them, why did you do what you did? They're going to say, we did this so that, oh Allah, we did it for your sake. We did it so that we can lift up the flag of la ilaha illallah. Allah is going to say that you lied. You did this so people can say what a brave person he was. What a brave person she was. She fought in so many battles. They did so many things. They killed so many kuffar. And this is what happened. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to order the malaika. You drag them by their face. And you throw them in Jahannam. 
Now these three acts, my beloved brothers and sisters in Islam, are extremely noble acts. Right? Sadaqah. Imparting knowledge. And fighting in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are great acts. But all three things have in common that people can say or you can do it for the sake of people. And this is why this hadith comes under the chapters of sincerity. Now I have a question. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala drag them by their faces or order the malaika to drag them by their face? Or drag them by their feet? Okay. Right? Uh, you're on the right track. Right? So humiliation. Right? You wake up in the morning. You go to the mirror, right? It's one of the first things you do. You go check if my face is fine, everything is fine. So they say the ulama, they explain that the faces are the most noblest parts of the body. Right? A small mark on the face and they don't want to go out. Right? A small mark here and down, stay at home or put in what you call those things trying to cover it up and that right and this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a sister says to humiliate them he drags them by their face and he throws them into the fire of Jahannam we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to keep our actions sincere and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of those that we only do things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and having said that with regards to sadaqah especially they come to a time as well where it is good to give something in public so that it can be as a form of an encouragement for other people and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But the best form of sadaqah is obviously to give when no one else knows about it. At least have one deed. One of our teachers used to always tell us, have one deed. Whatever it might be. That nobody knows only you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One deed. That your wife doesn't know, your family doesn't know, your children. No one knows except you and Allah. And be consistent on this deed. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive our shortcomings. Subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Ashadu wa la ilaha illa astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.